Uh, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 22. This is one of Jesus' parables. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Two weeks ago, I read a list from Colossians chapter 3, a list of character qualities. And each one of those qualities requires years of devoted practice to embody them fully. Uh, Humility, that doesn't come overnight. It's a wonderful thing to pray for because uh, you get humiliated in one way or another and you're kind of, uh, if if you're serious, you kind of get forced into it sometimes. Um, Now, although it seems like Paul uh, rattles them off, these really are important to our Christian life. Now, I'm a person who doesn't like rules and doesn't like lists of things. Uh, Since I'm not in the medical field and neurology is not something I've studied a lot of, I've had a heck of a time remembering the 12 cranial nerves. But I'm really attracted to them, and I'm, I'm really curious about them, and I, I find them fascinating. Uh, but I just can't remember that list all the time. And here's another list, and it seems like rules. And I've never taken these lists seriously. I've read through them and said, yeah, 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 yeah. But when we were in uh, that passage in Colossians, I thought, we really need to think about this. I, and I mentioned that I might, that might be my next series of talks. And since that time, I've decided, yeah, I'm going to do it. Um, because I realize that it would be very good for me. So you have to just live with that. 
so why are we in Matthew this morning if we're going to be talking about Paul's list in Colossians chapter 3? It's because Paul frames all these virtues in a specific context. Before the, the character qualities, he produces a list of vices. And he says of those vices, now you must put them all away, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. And then he begins with his list of virtues saying, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and then compassionate hearts, humility, and so on. Put off, take off, put on. That's why we begin with this parable. When reading this parable, I find myself carried up and down with alternating emotions. At first, I have the, the joy of this prospect of the, the heavenly wedding reception that occurs other places in the New Testament, uh, that, that heaven is pictured as this great reunion, this, this wonderful gathering to a feast. And it sounds so intimate and, and uh, such a nurturing environment as Jesus himself hosts us. But um, after that joy, that initial joy, I, I feel a sense of gratification in that Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of his religious critics. Just prior to this parable, uh, he's had a run-in again with the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and they are the ones who first received God's invitation, be my people, uh, come and join me. Come to my wedding feast, the wedding feast of my son. But they rejected that. They lived as though they, that is, they acted as though they had accepted the invitation, but they hadn't really. And this is the point that he's making. And it's gratifying from, I don't know, sometimes religious hypocrites just get under my skin. You know what I mean? And it's nice to, to see him put them in their place. So gratification. But then I'm disturbed. I'm actually thrown off balance. First, at the king's retaliation against those who insulted him. Um, it just seems a little harsh. But I'm bothered especially by his treatment of that one guest who did not dress up for the wedding reception, who gets thrown out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That really bothers me. And I identify with that person more than anyone else in the parable. <laughs> I often ask, ask myself, why haven't they caught you yet? <laughs> you know, <laughs> how, how can you still be here? Um, I just think maybe the angels aren't doing their job. When this happens while reading the scripture, when I read something that agitates me or disturbs me, I pause and take a deep breath and I just wait for a moment. Let my emotions re relax and settle so I can think more clearly. 
This is a parable. And parables speak in symbols and analogies. If you take them too literally, you'll never get to the truth Jesus is communicating. He tells parables because what he has to say transcends our rational minds. And we can only get to the heart of the parable if his spirit enlightens our spirits. Um, but parables do require this, this explanation, this interpreting. How it looks to us is that this poor guy is thrown out on a technicality, um, a, a minor offense. I mean, the king said, bring in everybody, go in and gather everybody. So maybe this guy didn't have time to go home and take a shower and put on his wedding suit. He just comes as he is. And, and he gets severely punished for that. Okay, has anyone else ever read this parable and felt the same way? Okay, I want to know that you know, I'm in a chord here. Um, we have to remember that this is Jesus who's telling the story. And literal clothing was not an issue before him. Earlier in Matthew, he said, don't be anxious about what you're going to put on, what you're going to wear. You know, look at the lilies of the field, how beautiful they are. And even Solomon, with all his wealth, could not look as, as luxuriant as they look. And, and in a parable, the meaning behind the symbols is much bigger than that. The only people who were excluded in the parable, parable were, first of all, those who excluded themselves, and then the man who took being there for granted. Every other type of person was accepted, the bad and the good. That's what it says. The man's offense was, was not as simple as saying, well, it was a lack of respect or a, a lack of reverence. His offense was that he accepted the invitation thinking he did not have to change. Change was the first word of Jesus' message. After his baptism and the trial of the temptations in the wilderness, we read, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repent is to change the mind. And I, I've probably exhausted the subject, but we've talked a lot about how the network of wiring in our brains can be changed. That neurons that are connected to each other, that, that we can lose those connections. That's how we forget a foreign language if we don't stay with it constantly. Um, and then neurons that have not connected can be connected to each other just by having enough thought about a particular subject. And so Jesus is saying, change your mind. And there, there really is a rewiring of the brain in order to repent. Uh, neurons that fire together, wire together, uh, Hebb's Law. And so uh, this, you know, Jesus says, well, come follow me, but you have to change. Come follow me, but uh, 
you, you have to repent. Your life is going to be different. You have to be ready for that when you come follow me. And I thought that Nancy described really well her early encounter with Jesus. Uh, uh, I, I've, I've known lots of people like that. Um, and if you try to talk to them about Jesus, they say, well, religion is a very personal matter to me. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, which is a good dodge. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you have to respect their privacy, so you, you back off. But uh, not changing into wedding clothes symbolized a more significant failure. Jesus had in mind people who pretend to be disciples of his but aren't. And he's talked about this before. He says, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name and that in your name. And he'll say, but I never knew you. Well, we knew you. Well, of course we knew him. But if he says, I never knew you, it means that we never made that real connect with him. Um, so if, if I can put it this way, the problem here is that this man came and he sat in God's house with a godless heart. Now, it might surprise you how often clothing is mentioned in the scriptures. From the Garden of Eden, when humans first discovered the shame of their nakedness, to the last chapter of Revelation, where those who wash their robes uh, are blessed. Clothes do more than cover the body. In scripture, clothing was expensive and calculated among a person's assets. I mean, I, I say in scripture, clothing was expensive. Clothing's expensive today. Uh, but then, in those times, clothing was equated to gold and silver. In other words, you could have a treasure if you had a very nice garment. Uh, a lot of clothing was homemade and rustic, but uh, people who could afford uh, fabric from Egypt, well, those people had money. Clothing signified status. Uh, long sleeves uh, were worn by pampered royalty. Uh, Jacob made a long sleeve robe for his son, Joseph, the, his pampered, favored child. Uh, David's daughters, the princesses of Jerusalem, wore these long-sleeved robes. Clothing, like body language, communicated a person's emotional state, uh, joy and celebration. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. And of course, the ornaments, the jewelry that people would wear, they would take off in times of mourning. Torn clothes signified frustration and anger or devastating grief. It's just, it's just too much to bear. And the torn clothing would represent the broken heart. Sackcloth, uh, wearing 
burlap against your skin was a way of praying with the body. It spoke of a person's despair and desperation, uh, you know, begging God, look at how I'm afflicted. Uh, and so demonstrating that affliction with the sackcloth. Clothing identified women who were widows as widows. And they also, clothing also identified people with infectious skin diseases. They had to tear their clothes and wear old clothes and uh, warn people off if they were lepers. There are stories in scripture in which clothing plays an important role in the plot of the story, uh, changing in and out of clothing, like uh, Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, wearing first her widow clothing, then dressing as a prostitute, and then taking that clothing off and wearing her widow clothing again. There are stories of people using clothing to deceive someone else. David was clothed in Saul's armor before he went out to uh, face Goliath. And he, he was walking around in it, and he took it off. He said, I can't use this stuff. This isn't me. And so removing clothing, the, the, the armor there, and saying, this is not me. This is not how I do things. My favorite clothing story in the Bible, and you know it well, Jesus is walking through a, a city and crowded by people, and this woman who's had this, this hemorrhage for 12 years, and she's seen doctors, and she's only gotten worse, not better. Uh, she tells herself, if I can touch just the hem of this man's robe, I'll be healed. And so she made her way through the crowd, uh, sneaking up behind Jesus, touching the hem of his robe, and she knew in her body she was healed. I love that part of the story. She just knew right then that healing had taken place. And Jesus turned and he said, who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? Uh, I read that story again this week, and at the same time, I was reading in the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, the priest who served in the sanctuary never left the sanctuary in their holy clothing. They had to come there in street clothes, change into the holy garments, change out of the holy garments. They did not risk ever anyone touching the holy garments. So they were sheltered instead in the sanctuary because if anyone touched the holy garments, they would violate the holiness that permeated the fabric and the the garment would be defiled and that person would... And both the, that person and the priest would suffer for it. So, uh, I mean, the, holiness is like this dynamic power, this energy, and no one could mess with that. So here's this woman. She comes up behind Jesus, and he turns and says, who touched my garments? And the disciples said, Lord, you know, we're all getting pushed around. This is a big crowd. Just, you know, take it easy. And he said, no, I felt. And what did he feel? Did he feel holiness? 
drift away. No, he felt the power of healing flow from his body. He wasn't defiled by her touch. His clothing wasn't defiled by her touch. She was healed by his touch. He brought holiness out of the sanctuary and shared it with the world. He really did change religion. Okay. So here's this guy who comes to the feast. He's not wearing a wedding garment and he gets kicked out. Now we have a context for how Paul presents his instructions to us. Put off the old self, put on the new self. Put off the old self and its vices, put on the new self and its virtues. And the image that he use, uses here is take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. That's exactly what this language is. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament for literally putting on clothing and taking off clothing. And Paul is saying, get rid of the old habits, the old lifestyle, the old person that you were. Become your new person in Jesus. Now, Growing up, I was constantly exposed to the stories of alcoholics or addicts or other you know, very down and out people who had turned to God and found a new life in Jesus and, and liberation from those old addictions. And it's wonderful. I mean, like any changed life like that is a wonderful story. But those of us who were never one of those unfortunates may not realize the better life offered to us in Jesus Christ. Not easier life by any stretch, um, but a more, it's more pure life. Pura vida. It's more the essence of life because the author of life is drawing us into his circle. He's sharing his own breath and spirit with us. So Paul is saying, put on this, this new person that you are in Jesus. Can you hear your mom saying, take off that ridiculous shirt? You know, maybe not to you, but to your dad, you know, or brother, you know, you're not going out of the house dressed like that. It, it's sort of like that. Uh, the difference is mom's, was, mom's concern was with your image or the family image. Paul's concern is with your identity, who you are. Uh, image is about how we look. Identity is about who we are. And Paul says, be the person that, that you are, the person that Jesus has, has called you to. Christians in the first four or five centuries were very fond of these vice lists and virtue lists. And Paul provides several lists like this in his letters and also 
uh, Jesus in the Beatitudes uh, provides uh, a virtue list. In time, these lists were streamlined to uh, seven or eight, uh, depending on when you lived. John Cassian in the fourth century uh, wrote a lot about what it meant to be a monk, someone devoted to uh, a life that's all prayer. And uh, he had a list of, of eight virtues, and basically they're the same that have been passed down to us today, the, the codified uh, virtues that most of us know something about. The, the seven deadly sins, uh, the seven, whatever they are, virtues. Uh, one reason that people appreciated these lists is because it provided for them clear boundaries and, and guidance, how to keep themselves out of trouble and close to God. And these, these pagan people, these Gentiles especially, who had become Christians, this was, this was good news for them uh, because they, they did not have this before. Okay, uh, there's this couple that I, I performed their wedding years ago. Wow. When I think about it, like they've been married for 40 years or more. Anyway, every once in a while, I, I, I bump into the husband and he'll remind me. He says, do you remember our premarital council when we met before, with you before the wedding? Um, of course, I remember now because it reminds me all the time. But uh, the funny thing about that is I didn't do premarital counsel. I, you know, I didn't even know what that was. Uh, but I, I remember sitting down with him, and he says, yeah, he said, um, uh, you asked us if we were living together. We said yes, and you said, well, don't have sex before your wedding. And that was it. That was my marital counsel. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, I remember the first time he, he, he reminded me, he said, you know, we didn't know any different before you said that. But when you said that, we went with it. Why? Because for the first time, they heard it, and they were Christians now, and now they knew what to do and what not to do. And so they just, they just and that's how the, the early Christians were. It's like, oh, that's wrong? You know, this is right? We need these lists, because morality is so confused today. Uh, and, and not just morality, it's, it's not just about that. There, there were more important and more valuable reasons for having these lists. It's because they laid out a spiritual path to a closer encounter with God, to a life that was closer to God. The lists were an aid to prayer. In other words, when we pray, there needs to be an emptying of the mind, an emptying of the heart and the soul. All the things that collect as we go through the world need to be emptied out so that our, our focus is clear, our attention is steady, and, and in the right direction. And so you know, that's, that's the value that we're looking for. I'll talk more about that next, next week because there's something I think um, 
a huge reward. One beatitude that sums up the purpose of all the beatitudes and all the virtues is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it's that purity of heart. That, that's why the virtue list, that's why the vice list, um, that purity of heart is important. Avoiding vices, practicing virtues, serve this purpose. I mean, we have help. Um, what will purify my heart? What will pollute my heart? Oliver Clement said uh, regarding the virtues, it frees human nature to follow its deep instinct to ascend toward God. It's like taking off weights and, and firing up the balloon and we ascend towards God with the virtues. We drop the weights of the vices. Arthur Diekman said, but piety for its own sake is not the point. So it's not just about having a moral guide. He says, in mystical science, virtuous behavior is prescribed as a necessary step in the development of intuitive perception. Not the rational mind, we can educate that, but that intuitive perception is, is developed in different ways. Mystics know that virtuous behavior leads to specific psychological effects essential to their goal. Traditional virtues are consistent with the underlying reality. That is, this material universe is one order of reality, but there's a reality behind it that's greater than it and that you know, creates this universe. And so traditional virtues are consistent with the underlying reality and provide the possibility of knowing that reality. Virtues prepare the mind for a more advanced perception. Now, Diekman warns that we can desire spiritual development for the wrong reasons. He said most people bring to meditation an acquisitive, self-centered orientation that is the cultural norm. I mean, that's why we do everything else, to acquire something and because of our self-centeredness. He says, according to the mystical literature, such an attitude determines the outcome of meditation. For this reason, the instructions that accompany the classical descriptions of meditation deal first with the necessity of purifying the heart, developing a selfless orientation before aspiring to special powers or experiences. This will be our purpose in carefully reading and meditating on Paul's virtue list, to wash the windows of our hearts so that we can see God. Last week, I, I closed the message by saying, even when you're not praying, think about God. Now, I came up with that uh, just before I spoke that message because I realized, well, we're not going to be praying 24 hours a day, but we can be thinking about God, and that can be a prayer or like a prayer. 
uh, and I hadn't thought of that before, but I started practicing it this week. And as I did, I found that my mind goes to deep issues. If I think about God, it just naturally takes me to, to the purpose of life issues, the meaning issues. Why, I'm, why am I even here? And why am I still here? <laughs> am I doing anything significant enough to give me aesthetic satisfaction before I die? Am I creating anything beautiful enough that I'll be satisfied that I brought beauty to the world before I die? Am I doing anything significant enough to bring me altruistic satisfaction before I die? That is, am I doing enough good for others that I'll be satisfied? Am I doing anything significant enough to give me gravity satisfaction before I die? And by that, I mean that causes other people to think, perhaps to think deep thoughts about things. You know, gravity is related to the word grave. You know, that's, that's where it goes. That's where gravity tends. And, and to have grave thoughts is to ask what should be written on my tombstone. Am I doing anything significant enough to give me grace, satisfaction before I die? Anything that frees others, anything that lifts their spirits, that lifts them up. Um, years ago, I had this conversation with John Wimber. Now, my preaching then was like, you know, uh, Bible thumping, hellfire, um, gray glorious. And uh, that is, I shouted a, a lot. Uh, I raised my voice a lot. And it was like lots of, lots of passion. And, uh, and John asked me, why do you preach that way? And I said, well... People need to repent. They're not going to repent unless they really feel the weight of their sin. And so I'm, you know, I'm helping them to feel that. <laughs> you know, if, if people were crying, I thought I was doing my job. Uh, and he said, well, you're not changing anyone. You're just making them feel bad. That, that bowled me over. I thought to myself, I didn't say it out loud, but I thought, crap. <laughs> I don't want to make people feel bad. I want them to, you know, to be lifted up. And I realized guilt pulls us down and grace lifts us up. And from then on, I tried to preach a message of mercy and grace. And I found more mercy and grace for myself, which I needed to find. So this is why we want the list that, that Paul provides. It's, it's better for us than you know, a list of the healthiest foods that we can eat, better than a, a pro, uh, the best program for physical fitness, more valuable than lessons on how to amass a fortune, you know, become famous and wealthy. Uh, this is the sort of list 
that will help you to be a good person and live the life of Jesus in such a way as to bring light and love and truth and beauty and goodness to the world. Would you stand with me, please? May the blessing of God's grace be on all of our lives this week as we approach the virtues. May you find how God has already been working these things into your life. And may you rejoice to realize that you're ahead of the game. May you find that he is with you to help you on the virtues that are frightening at first or threatening. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.